Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. This is part two of a special topic that we started yesterday um, evening. So actually, I guess we, yeah, Friday evening is when we started to put this together. At any rate, without any further discussion on that matter, let me get started. <clears throat> so we're calling this a bio biochemical partita. And it's the second movement, but movements aren't really how you break up musical partitas. And so we probably won't break it up the same way in a, the biochemical forma. But I'm going to subtopic this cellular necessity and the principle of sufficient reason as applied to biochemical pathways. You recall last time we were just getting into the glyoxylic cycle. So I want to set the stage for that <clears throat> by continuing my narrative on cellular necessity and then move into this subtopic, which is really a major example of how biochemical pathways are interdigitated in cellular dynamics. And by describing that, it allows me then to open up the larger question about why are cells necessary for living systems? Which is what we were doing last time we um, occupied our time with it. <clears throat> so must the cell exist for life? Now, for life, I say that answer is unequivocal because cells are universal and they are necessary. And thus, they fulfill the what I'm calling a priori synthesis in nature as a principle of sufficient reason, which we've already described. Now, you could examine any of the metabolic pathways in the cell, and you might find that none of them stand uniquely necessary, but they are nevertheless coherently and foundationally required via what I'm describing as a mutualistic pseudo-contingency obtaining, of course, a network of integrated and, yeah, cross-regulated energy-coupled biochemical instantiations. So that's not a reductionist perspective, by the way. <clears throat> In fact, there's no evidence to support the concept of multiple contingencies relying on only one necessity. That is a unified event in and of its own absolute agency, unless you're prepared to call that event ordained as living. Okay, so I, I think this is obvious. Since there are many different classes of cells that exist, but none of them in any particular system outside of that system excluding the system, are necessary, that means, for other systems. And, of course, there are scores of autonomously replicating biological genera and species. So in the deeper sense of cellular metabolism, all pathways must function authentically, regardless of potential redundancy, um, so in the range of viable alternatives, each must contribute to the system, 
according to the mechanisms that are inherent to the presentation of their involvement. Involvement where? In the cell. Involvement when? In cellular metabolism. So I would say paradoxically, biological reductionism is at foundation an argument for grand, albeit evolutionary, design. The design of basic molecules, otherwise known as their structures and functions, require a certain um, architectonic. So in this argument for biological reductionism, all of the reactions and the enzymes, this is just about one element of the features of the cell, but all the reactions and all the enzymes which catalyze them, that are, of course, translated from their messenger RNA, that is, of course, itself transcribed from its own complementary DNA sequences, are necessary for gene expression. So that's, that's the protein component. Fatty acids are generated from low molecular mass activated, typically thioesters, ultimately transformed to oxygen esters or amide linkages to glycerol and ceramide backbones by other enzymes that are specifically translocated to subcellular, often endomembranous compartments. So these pathways and their intermediates are all essential for life, and yet, are under a non-random turnover and sometimes retro-conversion according to the immediate responses to internal and external environmental communication networks that are all organized to maintain life and to reproduce. EOIPSO, all of their primary structures which dictate secondary and tertiary structures that organize into sequential biochemical functional events are only predisposed to unique fate with variable avenues of cellular consequence, including quiescence, autophagy, apoptosis, the multiple forms of apoptosis or programmed cell death, division, necrosis, and also the aging-associated senescence. All of that, obviously, is along a temporal continuum that is subject to quantum shifts in amplitude and, indeed, also in valence. However, in the midst of this order, there are epigenetic modifications that can and will shift and thus detour bioenergetics, proteolysis, lipid transport, transcription, translation, covalent modification, secretion, uptake, polarizability, DNA replication, recombination, repair, the three R's, and of course, the generation of reactive oxygen species leading to mutation and then resolution. The resolution can take both a pathological and a straightforward healthy physiological result. So cellular 
biochemical phenomena perform as necessary for specific reaction mechanisms and their metabolic control are a further elaboration of what we're calling inherited uncertain certainties in the form of biochemical phenomena as events. Now, having said all this, right, cellular physiology and the biochemical and biophysical processes that so obtain do not explain living. Nevertheless, we discover as scientists and uncover these systems with an ever-increasing finer lens. Failing to admit very often, this is all at the phenomenological level. Therefore, I reject reductionism since the argument in favor of that hypothesis requires that the simplest structures and indeed events they obtain would need to be sufficient to explain life. So a simpler argument, perhaps, against reductionism can be sparked by asking, why all this complexity? If selection pressure carved or sculpted every atomic structure in quantum state, shouldn't there be an elimination of any or perhaps all variation that isn't necessary for function? Yet, this is not what we observe in the world. Molecular variation is as florid as species diversity. And individuals within species obtain an even greater depth of differences, consider identical twins. So in my way of looking at it, think about the probability theory. Life is non-random, non-certain, and hyper-variable. What of life itself? Is life necessary? And what does that even mean? Necessary for what? How to answer that question? Well, one way is to ask if there is sufficient reason for the existence of living systems. Now, of course, outside or bracketing off a theological discussion, the answer is compellingly obscure especially at the scientific level, especially since we don't have a control group. We would need another Earth that has its proximity to its star and a local moon for gravitational forces that has evolved some four and a half billion years with identical electromagnetic radiation frequencies and abundant available liquid water. Now, even with that as a control in our hypothetical deductive analysis to answer questions about origins of living systems, it would only be one other sample. And indeed, 
could only be examined after the entire 4.5 billion years of existence, much like what we do with living systems on our planet. So let's leave that, let's bracket that whole discussion off and go back to the glyoxalate cycle. And, and we will see that almost all other living systems, excepting certain multicellular animals, possess that cycle. Planta, Monera, Archaea, Protus, and Fungi all have the glyoxylate pathway. Not the case animals. Okay, so that's an interesting question you could ask. So a way of getting at the whole story of the life process. So remember real quickly, when you digest lipids, there are typical lipids you take in will include triacylglycerol, phospholipids, sphingolipids, cholesterol esters. Most of all of those lipids will ultimately be emulsified with bile salts and make it into the small intestine. There, the primary products of the early stages of digestion are going to be free fatty acid, two monoacylglycerol, free cholesterol, and then remaining fragments of phospholipids. This is just lipids we're talking about here. So that triacylglycerol is going to be remodeled after removing two fatty acids from it. Now, those are lipase-mediated activities. Lipases are secreted by the pancreas and to some degree by the liver. So the liver and the pancreas are sending out bile salts and lipases and glycosidases and proteases to break down the initial foodstuffs that make it as far as the small intestine. In terms of the lipid component then, those lipids are re-esterified and sent as the first phase of lipoproteins known as chylomicrons through the lymph to the blood, ultimately making it to the liver. Okay, so that's a very brief summary. Now, what we're talking about here is from triacylglycerol, you make free fatty acid and glycerol. That free fatty acid can be used depending on the state of the uh, dietary function of the uh, animal. It can be used for beta oxidation of fatty acids in the mitochondria, particularly in the hepatocyte, and then onward to ketogenesis, making acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate. The glycerol that's left behind from the lipase activity, of course can be phosphorylated to L-glycerol-3-phosphate via the glycerol kinase, and then ultimately oxidized to dihydroxyacetone phosphate. This is how glycerol is being metabolized, okay? Now, in terms of the fatty acids, fatty acids will be esterified to coenzyme A, that's a thioester, and that fatty acyl group will be transferred to carnitine, which is an amino acid derivative. Carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1 
will then convert that fatty acid to an acyl carnitine. It will be transferred via the carnitine carrier protein, or CCP, into the matrix of the mitochondrion, where the acyl carnitine will generate in the uh, uh, process of carnitine palmitate will transferase to activity acyl-CoA in the matrix. Now, the reason you can't take acyl-CoA from the cytoplasm and just move them into the mitochondrial matrix for beta oxidation is because coenzyme A and its um, thioesters will not move through membranes because of the critical micellar concentration effect of CoA and its esters. Okay. We talked about this in the past. I'm not going to tell you about the, the uh, biochemistry of that right now. So the fatty acids that get into the mitochondrion, remember, will go through beta oxidation. That's going to include an acyl-CoA dehydrogenase. And that's going to be linked to a ubiquinone oxidoreductase and, a mitochondria, and the mitochondrial electron transport chain where you're going to get the full reduction of molecular oxygen to water, and you're going to make two ATP just from that initial dehydrogenase reaction. So then you're going to have as the first product trans-delta-2 enoyl-CoA. So you, put, you, you will have generated a double bond, a trans-double bond into that free-form fatty acid, which was originally completely saturated. The next reaction is going to be an enol-CoA hydratase. So that's going to generate 3L-hydroxyacyl-CoA, which will then go through the next dehydrogenase called 3-hydroxyacyl-CoA dehydrogenase. There you're going to make more uh, in this case, not FADH2, which you did in the first reaction, you're going to make NADHH+. Plus, okay? You're going to be left with a beta-ketoacyl-CoA, so the keto function, and then the reaction will be a completely oxidized, that carbon. And now the, the last reaction is beta-ketoacyl-CoA thiolase. So that's going to generate the first acetyl-CoA, and then the other product will be the fatty acyl-CoA, two carbon shorter. Okay, This is how you generate the reducing power, power, FADH2 and NADH, during fatty acid oxidation. Now, I want you to know that the beta oxidation of the fatty acid provides then FADH2 and NADHH+. And now when that's occurring in the mitochondria, that will effectively shut down the oxidative portions of the TCA cycle because of the buildup of NADH and also FADH2. So remember, in the TCA cycle, normally the, the, the conventional conversion of succinate to fumarate by succinate dehydrogenase generates FADH2. Because you're building FADH2 from fatty acid beta oxidation, that reaction will be inhibited by feedback inhibition. Malate dehydrogenase, for example, one of the dehydrogenases will also be inhibited because the product of malate dehydrogenase is oxalacetic acid, but also NADH. Okay, so you see what happens when you got 
uh, fatty acid oxidation. Now, I'm not going to talk about the conversion of polyunsaturated fatty acids of, say, the omega-3 or omega-6 variety with multiple double bonds. We've done that in the past, but just keep in mind that that also occurs. Now, what about odd-chain fatty acids? Well, odd-chain fatty acids aren't going to generate acetyl-CoA as a product. They will go through a beta-oxidation all the way down to propionyl-CoA. That's a three-carbon acyl-CoA. But propionyl-CoA will react with ATP and carbon dioxide via the propionyl-CoA carboxylase. That will make the four-carbon compound S-methylmalonyl-CoA, which will then go through a racemase reaction to make R-methylmalonyl-CoA, which will then be mutated to succinyl-CoA. And that can enter the TCA cycle. Okay. Now, notice we haven't described the production of oxaloacetic acid here because of the shutting down of the dehydrogenases. So the acetyl-CoA that's being generated in the mitochondria will not be able to go through the complete TCA cycle to make OAA to potentially contribute to the malate aspartate shuttle, leading to cytosolic gluconeogenesis. So all the carbon generated from fatty acid beta oxidation be it uh, even chain fatty acid, which is the more, much more common in the diet, like 95% or 98% of the fatty acids you are consuming are going to be of even chain. None of the acetyl-CoA is going to make it into gluconeogenesis because you're not going to have any carbon leaving the mitochondrion for that process to occur, OAA being a good substrate for the initial reactions of cytosolic gluconeogenesis, of course, because of all the blockage of all the dehydrogenases that are TCA cycle dependent. Okay, you understand that? All right. So that's why the carbon doesn't leave the mitochondria in case you've ever wondered. Rather, you're going to make ketone bodies with that acetate. You're going to make acetoacetate, D-beta-hydroxybutyrate, and of course, some spontaneous production of acetone. Okay. So let's put this together. In the liver mitochondria, Fatty acids and also some amino acids, which are, of course, ketogenic, right, in their degradative pathway, will generate acetyl-CoA. And 2-acetyl-CoA will react in the enzymatic mechanism known as ketothiolase, where you generate the 4-carbon acetoacetyl-CoA and free coenzyme A reduced, coash. Acetoacetyl-CoA will then be transformed to hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA. That's HMG-CoA. And that enzyme is HMG-CoA synthase, and that will pick up one more acetyl-CoA. Okay? Now, hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA will go through a lyse reaction, losing an acetyl-CoA, and therefore the thioester linkage, making now back to the four-carbon acetoacetyl. And now you'll just have acetoacetate. That is a ketone body, right? Acetoacetate. So you went from two acetyl-CoAs to the four-carbon acetoacetyl-CoA to the six-carbon hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA 
only to lose acetyl-CoA, but make now the free acetoacetate. One more reaction, acetoacetate can be converted to beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, by an NADH-dependent enzyme known as beta-hydroxybutyrate dehydrogenase, further utilizing some of that NADH coming from beta-oxidation, okay? generating some AD, NAD, which is necessary to drive the beta-oxidation. Right? So you will then make beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's the second major ketone body. Acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, no longer thioesters, make it to the bloodstream, and they can go to the mitochondria, for example, of the muscle or the brain or other peripheral tissues. Once there, the beta-hydroxybutyrate is going to be reduced back to um, acetoacetate via the beta-hydroxybutyrate dehydrogenase. Okay. Now, the acetoacetate is going to be converted to acetoacetyl-CoA by the reaction of thiophorase, which uses succinyl-CoA to transform into succinate. So acetoacetate back to the coenzyme A-thioester, making acetoacetyl-CoA. Acetoacetyl-CoA, then a ketothiolase reaction, introducing free coenzyme A-reduced, will bring you back to two acetyl-CoAs. And in that muscle tissue, those acetyl-CoAs, can enter the TCA cycle, okay, for generating NADH and FADH2 for those muscle cells or brain cells that generate ATP, right? Not to generate glucose. You're not getting gluconeogenesis in the muscle or the brain. No, you're getting direct oxidation of the NADH and FADH2 for what? For ATP synthesis via the electron transport chain, the five complexes, right? Okay, not the five families, five complexes. So I, hopefully you got that whole picture down now because I think I've explained those reactions in sufficient detail. So you've got beta oxidation occurs in the mitochondrion. And I want you to know that fatty acid synthesis does not occur in the mitochondrion animal cells. It occurs in the cytoplasm, right? So in the cytoplasm, Rather than using coenzyme A, use acyl carrier protein as the group phosphopantothiene thioester during fatty acid synthesis. And you're using NADPH as the electron donor, because remember, this is reductive biosynthesis. Okay? So that's a very important one other difference between beta oxidation and and fatty acids, biosynthesis, or FAS, fatty acid synthesis, is you're not starting um, with just acetyl-CoA, you're making malonyl-CoA via that very important rate-limiting enzyme which starts fatty acid synthesis. There's two isoforms of it, of course. But the major isoform for fatty acid synthesis is, of course, acetyl-carboxylase, cytosolic, acetyl-carboxylase, which is under the control of citrate, and polymerization, among other things, such as phosphorylation, the acetylcarboxylase is going to generate malonyl-CoA, and you need to make malonyl-ACP to charge the fatty acid synthase so that you can start building up C2 units. Remember that initial reaction uh, with, with malonyl-CoA, malonyl, first malonyl-ACP, is you're going to drive that condensation reaction to make the first C4 intermediate, the butyryl ACP, that's going to occur 
by the loss of that CO2 that was fixed on the malonyl, for malonyl CoA synthesis by the carboxylase, these silicon carboxylase, you see. That's what drives that reaction. Let me look at my time here. Wow, 28 minutes. <laughs> okay, so I'm telling you all this background. Obviously, it's going to take another lecture or two because I'm going to eventually show you. So this is just fatty acid uh, uh, beta oxidation, utilization of fatty acyl carbon to generate reducing power. Absolutely essential in eukaryotic cells, essential in prokaryotic cells. So remember, we're trying to build up what satisfies the principle of sufficient reason for cellular metabolic pathways. And I'm going through some of them now. Fatty acid oxidation, obviously. TCA cycle, obviously. Glycolysis, obviously. Gluconeogenesis with the synthesis of glucose from non-lipid precursors in animal cells, absolutely. Okay? But eventually we're going to talk about the glyoxylate cycle and show you how that is a roundabout way of getting most of the TCA cycle satisfied. But in the final teleology of the glyoxylate cycle, you're going to be able to generate fatty acyl carbon for gluconeogenesis. And no, that does not happen in animals. So there's an answer already to part of the question. Are all these metabolic pathways we talk about essential for all cells? No, and certainly not for all organisms. Animals don't need to take fatty acyl carbon and use it for gluconeogenesis. They can use the glycerol for it, as we were talking about at the beginning of the lecture, but not the fatty acyl carbon. Okay, so next lecture, I'm going to try to hopefully finish that and get to the glycoxylate cycle. Got a, little, a couple more things to say about intermediary metabolism. This is Dr. Dan Guerra on a Sunday evening, the 29th of January, 2023. Hoping you're enjoying this, saying bye for now.